Monday and Tuesday of this week, so the last couple of days, uh, our staff was down at Calvary Fellowship in Seattle at the Northwest Pastors Conference. And, um, man, I'm bursting. It was exhausting. It was teaching, teaching, worship, worship, teaching, worship, teaching, teaching, worship, teaching, worship, teaching, worship, worship. Then we had lunch. It was, it was just teaching after teaching. Great, uh, great speakers bringing the word. We're talking about the kingdom. And what was interesting is we all, uh, to a person on staff, recognized that Sunday morning's teaching about the gospel really was the intro, was the opening to that conference. It was for us. Obviously, everybody else at the conference wasn't here. But for us, it, it laid in exactly where the conference was going, such that this Sunday we're going to go back and we're going to talk about the gospel part two and think through a few more things um, related to the gospel and specifically the gospel of the kingdom. So much right now is buzzing around in my spirit. The Lord spoke a lot of things into my heart. Some of them were very heavy. I mean, I was exhausted by the time we got back to the hotel on Monday night. I was just spent. And then I never sleep the first night away from home. Anytime I go away from home, if I'm just one night away from home, I just figure I'm not going to sleep. Give me two nights. By the second night, I'll catch up. My body will adjust and whatever. But So then went back to the conference the next morning, hopped up on Christian crack. Coffee. And through another day, um, I will share with you, uh, I, I'm going to try not to actually tonight because we have other things to talk about, but I will be sharing with you some of the weightier things that I have been hearing and that I, I believe the Lord was speaking. But there are some things of, of what I would consider intense relevance for us as a fellowship, for what we're doing and what we're about. And I think I'll just leave it there. Uh, except to say that we are called to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we talked about on Sunday, if it doesn't get in, um, then we will have, as a church, missed our calling. Oh, Rick, we've been here 13 years. Don't we know what our calling is? Yeah, I, I believe we do. But it's so easy to wander away from a church's reason for existing. I'll give you a little hint. It's not so we can gather here and have Bible study. It's not why we're here. It's not so we can just look after the needs of one another. It's not so that we can lift up great services and times of worship and praise. All those are good. All those are important. But that is not the primary mission of the church. Matthew 28, 18-20 is the primary mission of the church. That's why we're here. What does it say, Rick? Read it. And we'll talk about it more on Sunday. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I need to get back there or I'll just sit here and wax an elephant all night long. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. Paul said, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And so we are not above all most to be pitied. 
Because the very thing that we hope in is reality. Not only has taken place, but will take place. Psalm 17, verse 14 says, From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. What is he saying there? He's saying people find all kinds of satisfaction in this world, in this life, even in the bearing of children and passing along legacies to children. But David says in Psalm 17, as for me, my satisfaction is with your likeness when I awake. And I don't think he's talking about waking up in the morning. I think he's talking about being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in the resurrection. Martha understood the resurrection, had a sense of it, at least she believed in a future resurrection. We see her pouring out her heart to Jesus four days after the funeral and burial of her brother Lazarus. Jesus finally shows up. He finally makes it into town. Martha comes rushing out to him. And over her dearly departed brother, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That is good Hebrew theology. And Martha understood it. I know, John eleven twenty four. he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. How did she know? Martha was a good Jewish girl. She knew her scriptures. She knew what the Hebrew prophets had taught about the resurrection on the last day. That's not New Testament theology, that is Old Testament theology. Old and new. Job 19.26 Job said, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. He's talking about after his death, in the flesh, he's going to see God. Isaiah 26.19, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. Well, of course they will. (laughs) Daniel 12, verse 2, the prophet is told, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The resurrection was not a new concept with Jesus and the apostles. It's always been taught, always been believed. As we saw, I believe, last week, Hebrews 11 says Abraham believed that Isaac was going to raise from the dead. That's why he was willing to sacrifice him. Because he figured God will give him back. He believed in resurrection. And so Martha, this Hebrew daughter, well versed in the theology of the resurrection, cries out to the Lord, I know Lazarus will rise again. I have no doubt that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And you know what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I love that dichotomy. If you believe in me and you die, you're going to raise in the resurrection. And if you believe in me and you don't die, 
You're going to raise in the resurrection. It's called the rapture of the church. We're getting there. We are getting there. But as I said a few moments ago, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. And get this, it wasn't just a one-time historical event to be celebrated annually in Sunday services followed by brunch, bonnets, baskets, and bunnies. The resurrection, no. Jesus' resurrection then marked the beginning of the resurrection to come. Our resurrection. Which really is the whole point. I mean, understand, Jesus is the basis He is the source, He is the power of resurrection. But when the New Testament uses the term resurrection, the resurrection, it only qualifies that term four times. That is, four times in the entire New Testament, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in those four instances, it is talking specifically about Christ's resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead on the third day, stone rolled away, appearing to Martha or to Mary, and appearing to Peter and the apostles, and you know the rest of the story. The rest of the time in the New Testament, 20 more times, every time resurrection is referred to, it is the resurrection. The first resurrection of which Christ Jesus is the first fruits. The emphasis, the great emphasis in the apostles' teaching is the resurrection, sourced in His resurrection, which kicked wide open the door for our future resurrection. Are you with me on that? Look at verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ's at His coming. you got to be Christ's. You want to be part of the resurrection, which is coming with quickening pace. you got to be Christ's. you got to belong to Him. And he goes on and says, Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father. And yet misunderstandings and blatantly false teachings about these, the resurrection began early on. While it was part of Hebrew theology and understanding and Scripture, when the church was founded, and especially when the church began to spill into the Gentile world and spill into the pagan world and affect and change the lives of idolaters and draw them back into monotheism and the worship of Jesus Christ, at that time, the concept of resurrection began to get a little wonky among some. Wonky is a good Bible term, I think. It began to be misunderstood and, again, taught against very early on. I mean, we're talking first century. We're talking as the New Testament was even being formed, it was already being misunderstood, misconstrued, and mistaught. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. Paul wrote, Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, that is those who chatter with emptiness, are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have gone astray from the truth. How, Paul? Saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And they upset the faith of some. What did they mean the resurrection had already taken place? Listen, the empty chatter going on at Corinth wasn't opposed to Jesus' resurrection. 
It was against the resurrection. They believed, as we've already talked about, believed and received, verse 2, verse 11, that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Okay, well and good. But as we study this, and just not even going outside of the letter to the church of Corinth, just staying right here, and sitting in 1 Corinthians 15, it becomes very clear that their misunderstanding, that their problem wasn't with Jesus' resurrection, but was with their future resurrection. And I think the whole context is because, as we talked about last week, they were spiritualizing everything. That the resurrection, as far as they were concerned, happened when they became Christians, and now they were slowly becoming more and more and deeper spiritual people. And ultimately they would just, I don't know, float right on up to heaven? Ultimately just become so spiritual... You know, there's a misnomer about spirituality. Okay, this is one of the things that I heard loud and clear this week. A misnomer about spirituality that you have to feel it. You know, there are times I'm asked to pray for someone and I don't feel like it. My heart's not in it and I almost feel bad because I think, you know, oh, if I'm not feeling all spiritual, then my prayer, where's it going to go? What's it going to accomplish? Guess what? Whether I'm feeling spiritual or not, the power is not mine. It is the work of God. Do you realize that He is capable of working even when you are completely faithless? That He is able to heal someone even when you don't expect to be involved in that healing? So it's not a, it's not a feeling. And at Corinth, it was all feeling. It felt good. And, and they were headed down this spiritual path. And they believed in the resurrection of Jesus while discounting their own future resurrection, believing, I think, that it had already kind of taken place. They became Christians. And so now that's the resurrection of sorts. Now they're just spiritually learning the tongues of angels and they have all these gifts and eventually they're just going to outgrow their bodies and be spiritual. So Paul takes up This final source of contention, truly, in the whole letter. This is the last one where he really has to deal with them on this. And last week we began to unpack his three rock-solid arguments, not for Jesus' resurrection, but for the resurrection of which Jesus was the first fruits. Okay? Begins to unpack this for them. Begins to bring arguments to help them understand their future resurrection is real, is coming, is legitimate is an actual thing. And so we talked about this, and I want to just kind of bring you back up to speed, because we we stopped actually about, I don't know, a third of the way through, two-thirds of the way through. First, in the first 11 verses, as we studied, he reestablishes the fact of Jesus' resurrection. I'm so thankful for the problems at Corinth, because without them, we wouldn't have this amazing teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. We would never have learned that more than 500 people saw him resurrected at one time in those 40 days between resurrection and ascension. We wouldn't hear the things that Paul just lays down and establishes. Those who saw him, including himself, as one untimely born. So the first 11 verses, the reestablishment of the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Second section... Verses 12 through 34, Paul repudiates several Corinthian contradictions. On the one hand, those who are saying there's no resurrection. On the other hand, but they're doing things that imply that there is a future resurrection. So they're contradicting themselves in their teaching, and as we'll see tonight, in their behavior. 
Finally, in verse 35 and on to the end of the chapter, Paul reveals their resurrection. That's the part I'm excited to get to tonight. You want to know what it looks like? You want to understand what it is? Paul's going to lay it out in in beautiful terminology. Now, we're halfway through the second section, which is the repudiation of certain contradictory attitudes at Corinth. Okay? We further organize that into three points, just to see if you're really with me. And those three points we began to talk about were that if Jesus didn't resurrect, we would be pitifully hopeless. It's a contradiction to even call yourself a Christian if Jesus did not resurrect. You are wasting your time. Go home. Go to Starbucks. Get yourself a nice latte. One of those tasty little chocolate croissants. Kick back, relax, hang out with friends, go home early. What are you doing if there's no resurrection? And that's the point Paul's making. It's ridiculous. Why live the Christian life at all? And then the second thing he says, but because Jesus did resurrect, we are profoundly hopeful. That's the great reality. Because we know Jesus was raised from the dead, we can be assured so will we. How do you know you're going to resurrect? Because He did. And He's the first fruits. God's going to finish the job. What began with Jesus will find its completion. And by the way, not only will we be resurrected, but we will be resurrected after the pattern that He established. What will I be like in my resurrection? Look at Jesus. Study the resurrection of Jesus. Look at Him in His resurrected state. Consider Him. Think about Him. Study that in the Gospels. And you will get a greater and greater sense of what you're going to be like when you resurrect. He established that for us. So this brings us to the last contradiction argument in this contradiction section. And that is simply this. If Jesus didn't resurrect, we would be patently hypocritical. If He didn't resurrect. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then, for example, Easter is excessive. If Jesus didn't resurrect, Sunday services are a sham. Why are we doing what we're doing if He didn't resurrect? You see, behavior always exposes real belief. You don't do something unless you actually kind of believe that way, think that way. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. I don't really know what that means. It kind of scares me. I don't want to find something in my pudding. I want it smooth and unblemished, which is why I, I, I can't eat like rice pudding. Because it's got those little chunks in it. Which remind me of, well I won't say it because it'll upset those of you who like rice pudding. Maggots. Um, so, I want my pudding smooth. Back to what I'm saying, totally had nothing to do with anything. What we do always exposes what we believe. What we do exposes what we believe. I believe rice pudding is disgusting, therefore I will not eat it. If I told you that rice pudding reminds me of small bug larva, but I'm sitting here eating rice pudding, you go, Rick, you're a hypocrite. It's, it's the angry atheist. There's a hypocrite. Seriously. If you're an atheist, don't be angry at me. Feel sorry for me. Treat me as pathetic, but don't be mad. 
Don't be argumentative because, hey, you don't believe this. But you do believe this. That's why they're angry. It's the anxious agnostic. What are you worried about? You know? It's the carnal Christian. Oh, I claim to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I love Jesus. Does your life reflect that? Or are you claiming one thing in belief but acting out in another way? How can we claim Jesus in life but deny Jesus in lifestyle? Jesus said in Matthew 7.20, You will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That should rattle us a bit. It should at least make us sit up and take notice. He says, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who does the will of the Father? Those who believe in Jesus. Because if I believe in Jesus, I'm going to do what Jesus asked me to do. If I love Jesus, I'm going to keep His commandments. It just works that way. Paul now is going to make a very unusual argument. Fascinating to me. And and he's going to make it ad hominem. I just wanted to say ad hominem. He's going to make this argument because what ad hominem means is having already appealed to fact and intellect and reason, Paul is now going to appeal to the motivations of feelings and behavior. And so he says in verse 29, buckle up for this one. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Contradiction, Church of Corinth. If you don't believe in a resurrection, why are you baptizing people for the dead? Excuse me, Paul? (laughs) What in the world are you? Did Paul just become a Mormon? What is going on here? What does he mean by this? This single verse is fraught with difficulties. I'll just tell you that right up front. But before we deal with this peculiar idea of baptism for the dead, let's simply understand Paul's point. Let's, let's get the point clarified, and then we'll talk about the weirdness of the, of the example. What he's saying is, if you don't believe in a future resurrection, why would you do something that affirms it? Okay, that's the point he's making. That's pretty simple, right? If you don't believe that there's a future resurrection, why would you baptize the dead or baptize for the dead so that then they could experience that future resurrection that you don't believe in? See, it's a contradiction. There's a behavior going on here that contradicts this this idea. Take, for example, common biblical believers' baptism. Why would you do it if you don't think you're going to resurrect. You see, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, that's, by the way, why we immerse. Because there is a likeness of burial that takes place. That's exactly what the first century church taught and believed. Baptism was always by immersion. The word baptizo means to immerse. And the point was to bury a person. The likeness of his death. And then to raise them out of the water. Certainly, he says, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, that's the point that Paul is making here. Baptism with a view to the future. 
Now again, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the weirdness of baptism for the dead, but, but the point is, why would you do this at all? Any kind of baptism, if you didn't believe there was a future resurrection. So that's pretty simple. But this point is weird. This verse may be the reason Peter said, our brother Paul is hard to understand. <laughs> you know, as Peter's out fishing, you don't get him. Mormons actually do tap into this single verse and practice baptism for the dead. Perhaps you know that. The, the, the concept is baptism by proxy. The reason why the Mormon church keeps such, such precise and excellent genealogical records is so that they can go back and find people who perhaps were not believing 1800s, you know, 1900s. Were they around? Yeah, they were around 1800s. They can go back and track and go, oh, well, Uncle Harold wasn't a believer, so I'm going to be baptized for him, baptism by proxy, and save him. And that's the idea of baptism for the dead in the Mormon church. By the way, that is contrary to salvation by faith in God's grace. Because in that case, baptism becomes a work. Something we do that earns or attains our salvation. And that's completely contrary to the gospel. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. When this baptistry over here gets repaired, which as you can see it's in process here, when that's done, we still are not going to baptize people to save them. You're saved by faith in God's grace alone, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. It's not baptism that does it. It's Baptism is the outward example of that. It's, it's the behavior that shows what has happened in the heart. And what's already happened between you and God. In Mormonism, Mormonism is by nature, as is so much religion, the religion of work. You have to earn your way. You have to do certain prescribed things. And the better you do, the more you earn. Well, that's not Jesus. Jesus came and died for the lost. He came to save sinners who couldn't save themselves by any stretch of the imagination. By the way, the Mormon church also, because of this, gets into necromancy. That is communicating with the dead, conjuring spirits, because they got to ask the spirit if they want to be baptized. They always do, which is interesting. So they conjure spirits so that they can have a conversation with the spirit and see if they want to get baptized, and then the person can be now baptized for the dead. And ironically to me, the Mormon church will appeal to this verse to substantiate an entire doctrinal stand while completely tossing out much of the rest of Scripture. We're saying anywhere that the Bible contradicts with the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price, they're, they're literature. If there's a contradiction, well, then the Bible's wrong and, and this is right. But in this case, this one was right. Interesting. Baptism for the dead appeals actually to several cults. If it's ever made you uncomfortable that it's in the Bible, well, it should. Because it's a strange verse. It's a single verse. Strange nonetheless. We already know Corinth was dealing with residual paganism. It was seeping in. There were attitudes, things we've read in the letter, that were problematic in Corinth. And so there may be some influence here from that. 
So what, what did Paul mean? I mean, that's a question that, that really plagues Bible scholars. Beyond his argument for a future resurrection, what is this reference to baptism for the dead, or those who are baptized for the dead? I'm going to give you three of what I think are the most plausible possibilities. There are many. I'm just going to give you three, because we don't have time to do them all tonight. The three, in my opinion, and this again is opinion, the three most plausible possibilities as to what Paul is really talking about. Number one, the dead here refers to Jesus. And some have said perhaps that's really what he's talking about. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Perhaps Paul is ironically saying, or restating what he already said. Look back at verse 12. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. So perhaps Paul is saying you're being baptized for the one who was dead. Jesus. That's an interesting thought. I guess it's a possibility. The only problem is, why would you be baptized into a dead man? Jesus is not dead. Jesus in nowhere in the entire Bible is referred to as the dead. He is called the one who was dead and is now alive. But he's never referred to as, you know, our our Lord, the dead one. Our Savior. The dead. He's not even called the walking dead. I mean, there's no dead attachment, you know, that's, that's not in the Bible. And furthermore... The dead here, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Notice the next verse, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Them. It's plural. And even the phrase, the necros, the, I think it's tone necron there, is plural. It's the plural form of the Greek. So we're not talking about one person, so it can't be Jesus. He uses the third person third person personal pronoun, them. So it's not Jesus. It was a valiant effort, I think, by the scholar who came up with this, that the dead refers to Jesus, but I don't see how that's possible. Here's the Greek phrase. It is literally, baptizomenoi, baptized, huper, ton nekron. Baptizomenoi, huper, ton nekron, in the Greek. Now I tell you that because some tap into look at this word, huper, which is the word translated, for. Okay, look at that again. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? Baptized for the dead. That's, that's the tough statement. But the word huper in the Greek has many different ways it can be translated. It can be translated for, as it is here in the NASB, and I believe the King James has it translated that way as well. Baptized for the dead. But the word huper also translates above. It also translates about. Across. Or many times, because of. Because of. Well, that would be completely different, wouldn't it? If he said, what will those do who are baptized because of the dead? Okay, now it's not for those who died at all, but their baptism isn't somehow related to those who have died, but it's because of those who have died, which leads to the next possibility, and that is that the dead here refers to, number two, martyrs. Those who have died in the faith, who through their death, through their martyrdom, influenced those 
who then went on to be baptized. Why are you baptized for those who were martyred for their faith? Why are you baptized for those who died? Those who influenced you to to go this direction, to, to think this way. It's like Tertullian once said, a favorite of mine, the blood of martyrs is seed. And in the first century, and we don't experience it as much today, at least not in our culture, it's happening all over the world. But we don't experience the influence of martyrdom on us. I guarantee you, if we in this church had people who were being taken out and shot because they were Christians, it would have a dramatic impact on our faith. An immediate impact. And if you knew, if you showed up at church on Sunday, and you knew that our dear dear sister Rachel had been hung for her faith in the town square, what would it do to your faith? And I'm talking in all seriousness. I'm not trying to be funny here. What would it do to your faith to find out that Melinda had been thrown into prison because she would not refuse Christ Jesus? Would that not make those of us who are waffling either really strong and ready to stand up ourselves or flee? And would that not impact people in our community who start to see this is a people who refuse to reject Jesus? They will not denounce their Lord. And wouldn't we then see some people being baptized for the martyrs? Not for them as in in their place or for them because they want to be baptized into their death, but baptized because of that example, because of that influence. And I think that's a really good suggestion here that may be what Paul is referring to. Truly, he's referring to something here that the Corinthians would have understood because he doesn't qualify it or explain it at all. He just says it. They know what he was talking about. So maybe that's the deal that the dead refers to martyrs. If there's no resurrection, why are there martyrs? And why are you so influenced by the epic faith of martyrs who are so willing to die that you would then become baptized and become followers of Jesus? Maybe that's it. Now, that would feed right into Paul's next point. Another contradiction that he deals with in verses 30 and 31. Hold the thought, though. We'll come back to that in just a second. One more possibility here. And that is very simply, the dead, some say, may be referred to Jesus. I don't think so because of the plural and all of that. The dead may refer to martyrs, whose example influenced people to be baptized and follow Jesus. Or thirdly, The dead simply refers to a counterfeit heresy that was going on in Corinth. And that's the most simple explanation. Paul nowhere says it's okay or good that they're doing this. He just recognizes that something is going on that he terms baptism for the dead or baptism because the dead or baptism about the dead. And we know that this practice did take place early on in the church. Baptism for the dead. It not accepted by the church. In fact, it was rejected as heresy in the church. The first time we see it show up is in the 2nd century Gnostic heresy of the followers of a man named Marcion. Marcion came along and taught the, the Gnostic doctrine. Gnostic, Gnosis, it's, it's the knowing. And there were those, even at Corinth, we've already seen them, There were those at Corinth who had the knowing or thought they were in the know spiritually. They're kind of out ahead of everybody else, right? They were the wise. And so by the second century, you had these Gnostics. John addresses the Gnostics in all three of his uh, small letters. 
and even, I think, addresses the Gnosticism that was going on in his Gospel. So, was there Gnosticism happening in Corinth? Perhaps there was. Now, when Marcion, when this whole thing really exploded in the 2nd century, again, the church proper completely rejected it. But we know that heresy was there, and it's the first time we actually see the practice of the baptism for the dead take place, and it was among the Gnostic heretics of the 2nd century. But this was rolling very early on, and there are those who think that perhaps Paul is and does correct that issue going on at Corinth, the paganism that's sliding in. But here's the thing. The dead, if it does refer to a counterfeit heresy, where there's a counterfeit, it is always in contrast to something real. Right? You don't have counterfeit unless there's something real that it's, that it's faking, that it's falsifying. And so in this case, David Guzik, this is kind of the position that he takes, and, and he puts it this way. He says, Paul's point is plain. The pagans even believe in the resurrection because they baptize for the dead. The pagans have the sense to believe in resurrection, but some of you Corinthian Christians do not. So he may be making a comparison to something that they all know at Corinth is not true and is not right, but are aware that this thing's going on. And Paul's saying, why would anybody do something like that if they didn't believe in resurrection? So, which view is correct? I don't know. I have no idea. Taken a, a step further... Using the Bible as its own commentary, this is the only verse in the entire Bible that comes anywhere near referencing baptism for or even because of the dead. You will not find this anywhere else. You can't, you can't go, oh, well, in Ezekiel, we read this, and therefore that's what this is referring back to. There's nothing. There's no scriptural component that ties into 1 Corinthians 15.29. So we're kind of, we almost have to then close the one really good, perfect commentary we have and say we have no answer here. As for the commentaries of men, (laughs) Gordon Fee says at least 40 different solutions have been suggested. 40 for the baptism for the dead. And he says this, and I think he's spot on, when there is such a wide divergence of opinion... What that means is no one knows what in fact was going on. When you have scholars out there and 40 different opinions are given on one verse, they have not a clue. Nobody knows, and so we're just going to have to leave it right there. You will walk out of here tonight with no idea what baptism for the dead really means. I can tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean what the Mormons do. I can tell you it is not a legitimate act of Christian faith. Because Paul was very clear throughout his letters and the New Testament is absolutely clear that no one can save someone who's already died. Once a person has died, that's it. That is it. At that point, and I can say this by way of grace and gentleness, at that point, it's between the dead and God. There is nothing you can do. I say this with compassion for those of you who have lost a friend or a family member who you don't know where they were with God when they died. Don't 
labor over it. There is nothing you can do but say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on their soul and trust that your Father is a compassionate God. Beyond that, it's just speculation. You cannot save the dead. The Bible is clear on that. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we'll leave it there. Verse 30. Why are we also in danger every hour, Paul says? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, what is the point of Christian suffering? And Paul relates it to himself. Why in the world would I put up with what I've put up with? Why would I be flogged? Why would I be stoned? Why would I be left for dead? Why would I suffer hunger and hardship and turmoil and tribulation and difficulty? Why would I, as Paul says, die daily? And we went through the book of Acts. I think you all got a good sense of the fact that Paul's life was a mess from the moment he accepted Christ forward. Jesus ruined his life. I cannot imagine anything more wonderful than being ruined by Jesus. I mean, I I have prayed that prayer. Ruin me, Lord. Ruin me for you. Because what the world views as ruin is the most wonderful, glorious step into reality that a person can even imagine. To be with Jesus? Ruin me. But Paul says, I die daily. And it's actually one of Christianity's greatest proofs. That is the willingness to suffer. I'm not talking about suffer by blowing yourself up and taking out a dozen other people. That's just stupid. That is heathen, that's pagan. I'm talking about suffering while projecting and returning nothing but love. I'm talking about being hurt and not returning hurt. Christian suffering, man, a willingness to suffer, even die, because of something you can't deny. I cannot deny Jesus. Therefore, if you hold a gun to my head and say, Rick, deny Jesus or I will shoot you in the head, you got to shoot me in the head because I, I can't deny Him. Which is why the church continues 2,000 years later to grow and propagate and spread out in the world. And it still is. And we'll talk more about that Sunday. It's a great proof. By the way, Paul says in this, and he's talking about this contradiction, it's contradictory to suffer for a faith in something that's not going to happen. And he makes this comment, he says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. That's interesting. Now, he may have been referring to external opposition that was very intense at Ephesus. We know it was difficult for him there. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul is writing from Ephesus, and he's saying, Here I am, and I'm going to stay here a little longer, because, man, the gospel's moving, and people are getting upset. That's, by the way, one thing you know, one way you know if God's message is getting out there, is people are starting to get riled up. 
we have not yet offended Island County or Skagit County nearly enough. <laughs> when people start to get upset and push back, and that may, be, may have been what was happening there at Ephesus, but it's also possible that Paul himself was tossed into the Ephesian arena to face lions. We don't have the story in the book of Acts. We don't know, but like other Christians were, he may have been thrown into face and deal with what he says here, wild beasts at Ephesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul's threats were so severe and so real at Ephesus that he had to accept that he might be killed and have to trust that God was going to raise him, as he said he would. Who delivered us, Paul writes, from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. So it's possible that Paul was thrown into that arena and actually saved and, you know, faced and was saved from wild beasts. But the thing is this. Whatever was taking place at Ephesus and in the rest of Paul's ministry, he knew of which he spoke. What he's talking about here, when he says, how, how can we do this? Why are we in danger every hour if there's no future resurrection? Why would we put up with these things? As Paul would write in a later place, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I've shared with you all before, that's those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. If you don't want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you probably won't be persecuted. I even think there's an element, a segment of the church of people who will never suffer for their faith, never undergo any persecution for it whatsoever, and they are my brothers and sisters and they will be saved. But they will not live godly in Christ Jesus. That's a decision only you can make. To be in Christ, to be saved by Christ, to be warming a seat at church, or to be persecuted because you desire more than anything else to have a life ruined, as I said, by Jesus.